Hello everyone, welcome to a very special episode of Flight Through Entirety, the only Doctor Who podcast whose space expands to accommodate the time necessary to encompass its dimensions. <laughs> and with the amount of cake we eat, that's a very good thing. Hey. I'm Brendan. I'm Nathan. And I'm a pulled back rollykin in exotic livery for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so as you've probably guessed by the music and that introduction, today is all about the Cushing films. Nathan, would you like to explain to the listeners why we're doing the Cushing films now? You know, we could have done them at sort of separate times. The first Cushing film came out in the sort of interim between um, seasons two and three. I, you're really the history It was after um, it was after the chase, and um, it was yeah. The point is that the first one came out. Uh, there's a lot of things to say about these, isn't there? The, you know, why were they not as successful, perhaps, as they might have been? Everything was glowing on the board. It should have been the best thing. The first one came out right in the spirit of Dalek Mania. The second one came out. I think six days after Britain won World War Three in the World Cup, <laughs> which is pretty much how well England beat Britain in those days. And I've got a lot to say on the second film as to why, I guess you can probably guess which one I'd like the more, but, you know, why it really should have done pretty well and kind of didn't. Well, I mean... <laughs> we but, yes, it was mid-seasonal thing. They both came out at times... The first one came out when Hartnell was at his peak and doing... You know, really well, and the show was being talked about. ITV were looking nervous, still. What else do you want to say about Well, I just wanted to say that the second one comes out, uh, you know, at a time when when the show is floundering. When the ratings went... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that has to be laid at least partially at the feet of the production team chopping and changing and being so tumultuous that the show didn't know what the hell it was doing. No, it was doing a lot of other things at once, Mm. wasn't it? Yeah. We spent hours complaining about what it was doing. So (laughs) hours and hours. Thank you for sharing that with us, dear listeners. (laughs) So so this is is something of an addendum and an antidote to that um, rather uh, chaotic period of the show. I, I'm, I, I want to say gruesome. <laughs> gruesome. <laughs> Not tiresome. Well done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, which uh, really took the um, conventions of the show and did something new with them. Have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're having Cheers. a... Dear listener, we do have our uh, Flying Fox Hunter Valley Blanc de Blanc champagne. Or, sorry, sparkling wine, as we have to call it. Thank you, friends. With, with some very um, shiny Jill Curzon-inspired wallpaper <laughs> effect on it. It does look like, it does look like the, cushion, the Who's front room, doesn't it? The Ooh. nice room, the good room, the parlour. Yeah. Yes. And, they will, and we'll keep the tone suitable for the, for the wallpaper. Yes. From now on, won't we? yes I think so, so Doctor Who and the Daleks... Doctor Who's in the title of it, so it's still a major thing. Well, he, yes, but but when you look at the publicity things, I mean, it really is um, a film for people who want to see the Daleks again. Yes. And, uh, you know, they change uh, the premise of the show quite substantially. They change the regular characters quite substantially. Yeah. But the things that look the same and sound the same, who have they got back? Have they got David Graham back? They've got, uh, you know, yeah. people from the TV show to do the Daleks. The Daleks mm. are faithful to the way that they appear in the show. And so it is very definitely um, a film about Daleks with sort of Doctor Who in it, sort of incidentally, despite the fact that he gets billing. And, of course, he doesn't get billing in the title of the next one. It's um, Daleks. No, he doesn't. But yeah. they're very, very different films with very different precepts, and they do very different things. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look at 
Well, that's usually what I do, isn't it? If you want to look at what else is happening in cinema and television at the time, that it might as well be twenty or thirty years apart in the way they're made. They do feel just so different. They feel so watch them back to back, so different. And actually, for me, the second film is more like a forties European film, and the first film is actually kind of that gorgeous. Um, uh, visionary, almost, almost panto, can we say panto? But that, that sense of, uh, we've talked before about uh, the Edwardian sensibility in British fantasy writing of Edith Nesbitt, of the kind of more of the child writers that came after Wells, but the sensibility and the, the aura of it, if you like, especially when you get to the petrified forest, the little cupboard, this, the quiet inventor. It's, it feels very much like a children's Edwardian adventure story, and I really like it for that. Just the mood of it. And when I was seven or eight, the first time I saw this film, it was on black and white TV on a Sunday afternoon, but seeing the TARDIS, and it's still my favourite outer plasmic shell of, of, every, of, of anything, that prop, sitting in the forest with the transparent windows. It's the little things like, like that that tick the, the amygdala and the, the canvas bits of the fanboy brain to go into just cortisol overload. This is too exciting. And it's gorgeous. And yeah, I was building a lot of Lego tardi in Petrified. It, it does look... And then when you finally see it in colour, it's so lurid. It's kind of like those sequences in The Wizard of Oz again where you just go, which is, an, again, another one of that neo-romantic stuff it's actually kind of Vincent Minnelli. The first one is a bit like, is it American in Paris? No, it's Cushing in a petrified forest because we're doing it on a budget. But, it's, <laughs> but it actually has that same sort of sensorial, very emotional style of that neo-Hollywood. They actually call it neo I don't... It, think it's neorealism. I think it's uh, expressionism. Can we use that? Oh, please. Have a drink. (laughs) Cheers. That very expressionist style of of Hollywood cinema, which is actually both of them, if you like, when we look at American cinema, and I think think both of these films are really interesting for looking at, and exactly um, in a way that, what would the Yanks have done if they'd got hold of Doctor Who in the 60s? Well, I was just going to say, it's funny you should say that, because these films were used to try and launch Doctor Who in America, because the first film was adapted for, uh, it was adapted as a comic, and that was published in the UK and America. It was also novelised and only published in America, and there was an attempt to spin off a uh, international internationally distributed radio series. Totally separate from all of Nations goes with the Destructors and Sarah Yeah, Kingdom. absolutely. Okay. And uh, this was... It was, I believe, Aru focusing on all this. Terry Nation was naturally involved, and the BBC were naturally involved, and I think that may have had a hand in why it didn't quite launch, as well as the dwindling popularity of the Daleks, as we'll discuss later on with the second film. So... I actually remember watching this for the first time. You mentioned your first experience of watching it. I was actually kind of horribly disappointed, and I can't <laughs> remember. Uh, I think, I think I have only seen. I think, uh, I think I had only seen the second one right uh, before recently watching them um, for the podcast. I think it was the second one. Yes, it definitely is, because it's the one with all the coloured water going down the plug hole as the title yes, sequence. that's right. That's right. Yeah, it, actually, it actually is Doctor Who does Psycho. <laughs> Whereas the first one sort of lights. We didn't mention it? Jill Curzon's part yet, did we? No. <laughs> this going down the plug hole. That would be unfair. We're not up to Jill Curzon yet. Sorry, dear listener, we are getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> um, 
And and I think I think the disappointment came straight away from the fact that the music was different, mm. um, because you know it wasn't the I'd only ever experienced the seventies style title mm. sequence. Just shows you how powerful Delia Darvish is. Well, too, yeah, film, yeah. we still miss her yeah. even in the- <laughs> especially this year. <laughs> <laughs> Just to jump forward a few. <laughs> um, I'm kind I of think liking. Murray's been quite good this year, but anyway, yeah. getting way ahead of ourselves. <laughs> um, you know, like, I didn't really have enough sort of knowledge, obviously, back then of sort of 60s Doctor Who to have any sort of particular opinion about the rest of it. Um, but I think I must have been Tom Baker or John Pertwee must have been the only Doctors I ever saw. And so this, which was a lot about the Daleks and not very interested in the Doctor, um, didn't really grab me. And so it was only it was only in the last few weeks that I've actually sat down and properly looked at them for the first time. That's interesting. I, I remember the first time I saw the first one. I was staying with my uncle and my cousins. Uh, they lived about a 20-minute walk from our house, so quite often I'd be there weekends or they'd be rounded hours weekends. Um, and my uncle, who knew I loved Doctor Who, my cousins liked Doctor Who, had just got it out from the video shop. He had no idea what it was. Oddly, the person who knew what it was was my mother, who's not a big science fiction fan at all. But I will never forget the way she described it. She said, it's Peter Cushing doing his family-friendly movie. Oh. Because she remembered Peter Cushing as um, Van Helsing and Dracula and as yeah. Dr. Frankenstein and even as Grand Moff Tarkin. You know, she remembered him always as playing villains. This is the film where he's not being a villain. This is the film he can take his children to. However, which... he's still keeping the Cesar Romero moustache just so you don't feel too comfortable. There's just a little <laughs> bit of, you still don't know what's going to come, kids, do you? Does Van In the Helsing... same way. No, I don't remember that he does. It's and just... Frankenstein doesn't. So, do you think that he's 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 doing the moustache? Because I hate the moustache. <laughs> I just say oh, he's really confronting. It's, <laughs> it's, it's worse than Nicholas Courtney's worst thrown across the room <laughs> and landed sideways on his face moustache. It's terrible. We have now, you know, in or Jill Curzon. <laughs> she waxes. For she looks fabulous. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, With yeah. Terrible tombstone teeth. Mirroring <laughs> <laughs> up at you. We're still on the. <laughs> We're still on the first one. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I find the moustache really off-putting, but he's clearly doing it to distance himself from scary Hammer yes, horror absolutely. roles. It's like when Tom Baker quit Doctor Who and cut off all his hair. Yeah, cut his hair very short so it wasn't curly yeah. anymore. So he had a completely different silhouette. Yeah, yeah. So how do we find? How do we find? I was going to say Capaldi. How do we find Cushing? Yeah. How do we find Cushing in the role? Oh yeah, he approaches it approaches it in the same way that Billy does, but you end up with a very different reading in the the way that there are ticks and mm. mannerisms and very you know vocal things. I like the way he uses his physicality in the film in a similar way that Billy does. He Cushing, you know, the way he hobbles about, kind, kind of actually, kind of actually like. Um, Kind of like Gollum, <laughs> but, but in a long velvet frock coat. But, but the whole thing, you know, he, he takes up a lot of space. And, yeah. and they, these actors have a way of making you look at them, even though there's a big set with a wide screen. He said, no, no, you're going to look at me because I'm doing things you don't expect a, a body and a person to be doing at this moment. So it is very cheeky like that. Yeah. It's very different from TV, isn't it? Yeah, Where you're, in medium, you're in medium close-up. You know, Billy, I think, again, Sandifer. You know, Billy does a lot with his hands. Billy yes. Billy is performing for the small yes, screen. Touches his chin, that sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas you've got you've got 
him in a giant, giant screen. And so he's stooping, you know. He still vocally does a lot of stuff that Hartnell does. He still does the sort of fascinating, hmm, sort of thing. And he seems to be playing it older the way that that Billy does as well. Um, he just seems a little bit more generic. And he's certainly more... He's more cuddly and family-friendly. Yeah, isn't he? he's more mischievous, whereas Billy was more menacing. And I don't think Billy ever lost that sense of being slightly dangerous and slightly menacing. No, he never did. E- even after. He is humanised in the second season. But right up to when Ian and Barbara leave, he can still turn on them and shout at them and what have you. You can't imagine Peter Cushing's doctor shouting at Ian no. for falling over and breaking something. When sitting argu- on a box of chocolates. Sitting on a box of chocolates. <laughs> when arguably, you know... Um, it's all soft sentences. <laughs> Roy, Roy Castle's she Ian is it. far more deserving of a telling off than yeah. um, William Russell's Ian ever was. Yeah. So can we talk about the other regular cast people in the Daleks? So Ian, uh, Ian is new. He's not known to Barbara. It's mm. like the first date or their second date, they kind of know each other, but he's in, taking around. Is now is getting more complicated than the Eighth Doctors in the novels, you know, because you've got TV Ian, you've got Doctor mm. Who in an exciting adventure yeah, the, the, with the Daleks Ian, where he's a research scientist, but of course he is, because he's telling the story. And you've got Roy Castle's Ian, who's a pratfalling buffoon. <laughs> it is, I mean, it, because it's trying to be family-friendly, and that's mm. the most obvious um attempt to do it. There's very little humour in the TV version of the Daleks, is there? Yes, like, because, you know, you've got people dying of radiation poisoning, yeah. death rays, and oh, I don't know. There is the costume. squids. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is Terry Nation, and he's terribly yeah. gone, and, you know, yeah. like, he doesn't want us to have too much fun. Um, and I saw I, some of those costumes in San Francisco, by the way. Please go <laughs> on. <laughs> no, on the same people. I bet I am still going. So all of that sort of funny physical comedy in the in the first scene, and he has another scene trying to get in the they're going into the Dalek city for the first time, and they have to split up, and he tries to go through a door. Yeah, he uh, can't even go. He through can't the door. go through the door because <laughs> it keeps closing and all of that sort of thing. And so you know that gives him something to do, given that he's he you know doesn't have an established character who, who we've been with for four episodes or you know, who we've by this time been with for two years. Um, and he is sort of funny and he's sort of fairly amiable. And the interesting thing is, because of that, um, he actually gets the most character development out of anyone in the film because he starts off just as this accent-prone idiot and everyone under- underestimates him. But in the end, he is the one who risks his life. Yeah. Quite knowingly, you know, he knows what he's doing when he says, oh, he Daleks and throws himself on the floor. And he gets up and makes a joke about it. But it's like, actually, he's completely saved the day, which is very sort of modern new Doctor Who. If you look at Mickey, Mickey starts off as a complete buffoon. That's a really nice reading, actually, because, yeah, the Roy Castle is Mickey over the, just <laughs> transposed for two seasons. Concertina it into one little little picture. You're right. Except they don't really like they don't push it that far. Do you know what I mean? Like by then, I think you know the film's just a bunch of stuff that happened, and so the arc isn't isn't very clearly signposted. I yeah. think you're probably right. The fact that it, the person who's the idiot in the first scene saves mm. it in the final scene, but I never really kind of felt that as a sort of character progression. There's no moments leading up to that or anything. No, uh, not not really. I mean, he he. Even though he has that development, he is pretty much still the buffoon until that happens. Yeah. You know, it's 
Um, Which doesn't leave a lot for everyone else to do except be suffering yeah. scared females, plucky mm-hmm. young girls, or doddery. Where does Cushing fit into this? I, do you know why I feel they actually didn't do as well as they might have been expected to, considering there are good moments in it? I just think that it's the laziness of the production team. Why would you use a script that's already been seen on TV and familiar and redone? Can never because it really is never going to do as well. I think the answer to that might partly be, I do want to know what you think, but we've got two things we've touched on before that you only ever saw it once. Yeah. So the collective memory is, what was it like? And, you know, seeing it again at the cinema, this would have become how people actually remembered the first Dalek story because this was much more more viewable than than that very Mm. first story. And in fact, for decades afterwards, do you know what I mean? They didn't repeat the Daleks on no. television over and over again, but they did repeat, you know, it was a sort of bank holiday Monday thing, I mm. gather, where you would see those films. Yeah. Well, and they had a really strontium 90 half-life for 20 or 30 years before, <laughs> yeah. before video and before, yeah, TV have seen. And they did, they did kind of well for that. But the other thing is that it's a way films were made back then. We might see it as kind of laziness or playing too safe, but then it was you take the familiar and you put a new little twist on it. Stories were re- re-read. Culture, if you like, we have so much that's now available. Press another button, there's a whole other branch of stories. Stories were kind of simpler. People grew up on repetition of stories. Yeah. This is Well, this is like grim fairy tales or like your favourite books or your favourite shows. Repetition was seen as something that was actually a structured, useful thing. But we do live in a world of, like, sequels to everything. Sequels Every now. blockbuster is a sequel to something. But you also know. notice, what's our first reaction as culture, and especially as geek culture, when we hear that something is being remade? We scoff. We immediately go, why are there no original ideas? But, of course, back then, when we did have, as you say, Richard, that whole thing of you only see it once and it's gone. Do you know the first British sequel ever was only three... Mainstream sequel was only two... I'm not talking about things like... um, uh, Glynis Johns in her mermaid pictures in Miranda the Mermaid, she'd done a sequel. That was kind of exciting. <laughs> as, as, as British fantasy, oh, it's almost a trope, isn't it? But she's, um, but cheers. The very, the very first successful sequel was From Russia with Love. Britain didn't do sequel, sequel cinema until 007. And actually, I've got the I've got the Blu-ray set of the James Bonds, and they Me do too. say on the extra features, you know, we didn't expect to get a second film. We got yep. the options for the extra books, yep. but we didn't. Ex- we expected the first film to be popular. We didn't expect it to be so popular that we could go straight back into production. Cinema didn't didn't do sequel, mm. and what I'm saying was laziness. That was at the time seen as oh, the audience isn't going to ride with you on this one. You're just rehashing an old yes. Yes. Yeah. Actually, I'm all for abandoning the Doctor Who podcast at this point and doing a, uh, a, doing a Bond one. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. Well, oh, can I? <laughs> I'd actually like to say there are little points where you can jump on and off because some of the like, lovely stuff about this film, uh, the set designs, and that it's very Doctor No. You're d- yes. <laughs> it's very Ken Adam. Adam. You've got these no. huge sets with tiny figures inside. I actually think it's Ken Adam after he suffers a serious blow to the head. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking that at the time. I, I believe that's what we call You Only Live Twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just... Oh, no, come on. That's a brilliant, superb set. One that, of the best well, sets. Well, yeah, I, I just mean the film in general. That's, when, that's, that's You've even got the hood from Thunderbirds taking over... As 
as Blofeld. He, all his eyes don't light up. But, uh, she only lived twice as Thunderbirds in Bond. Really God, I love that film. Um, really, I'm really seriously considering abandoning this. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's clear to see through this discussion just how zeitgeisty these films are. Aren't they? Even, the music yeah. and the opening credits for the Daleks could have been a Bond film. You know, like yes. Dr. No doesn't start with the with the sort of song that we're sort of no, used three to. Three Blind Mice, Jamaican Calypso. But, even, but yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and so it's that instrumental thing, which is exactly how this thing begins. Yes. I mean, uh, it, it could be uh, the opening credits to Dr. No. So it is. And, and that's something that this film loses that the TV show has. And I think, spoiler alert, uh, we'll probably come down on the, uh, on the side of this is inferior to the TV. This is inferior to the transmitted version. The transmitted version has terrible problems, um, but uh, the film is not as good. Yeah. And one of the reasons is that that all There's of... There's no Billy. Well, at this point, there's no Jack Lee. There's no Jack um, There's no Carol Ann. Oh, well. oh yeah. <laughs> <But> Anyway. <laughs> they, they, cool. all the things, you know, you hear these stories about people being scared of the Doctor Who theme, um, that, that it, it's, the Doctor mm. Who is putting something on television that's strange and unprecedented, um, and for all of its yeah. rough edges and all of its sort of various crapnesses, it's trying to do something weird. This is much safer than that, isn't it? The Daleks, I don't think, are scary in these films. It's really sad that they're not. They're, and they're made to be poppy and fun. And guess that's the point of difference, isn't it? Is what Nathan's saying. The, the original television series has a kind of naturalistic grit and a playing out of time. Again, you don't even know how long the story's going to take, just mm. like this podcast, folks, <laughs> to, to get to the point. So... You are very much enmeshed in the narrative and you are really as much as you can be in a small screen in your front room on a Saturday afternoon mm. taken along for the ride. Cinema's a very different approach. I think the failing again in this, especially more so for the first film, is trying to just ape the first TV series rather than just saying, let's just do something fresh and surprising. Yeah. Yes, the Daleks aren't threatening because they're on the big screen and they've now become a piece of Warhol pop art. British yeah. pop, actually, just a Peter Blake piece of pop art. And they're quite powerful for that. But the thing is, they could have actually been made to be very menacing and that could have been used to even heighten the, the fear. There's nothing as scary as a clown face, is there? All that colour yes. and, and shininess. Yeah. And these, but these anodized anodyne <laughs> little zoetropes <laughs> that are spinning around there. Yeah, it's, we've kind of got to the point that I'm expecting Sylvester McCoy to come in and blow a raspberry because they're just so silly at this point. You're really easy to push down a tube, aren't they? Or is that Jill Curzon's role in the second <laughs> film? <laughs> so, um, can we go back to talking about the regular cast for a second? Like Maybe. the new regular cast? Maybe. So, they've made the decision to make Susan a little girl. Yeah. Um, Doctor How Who, do you feel about that? Well, you know, like, I have to say that I actually really like Susie in both films, yeah, and I yeah. was really surprised by that. Yeah. Um, it's clearly an attempt to be child-friendly. Do you know what I mean? We're bringing children to the cinema. It's a sort of identification character. It, she's not at all unearthly. You know, she's not that weird-mannered performance that we get from Carol Ann Ford, but she's really plucky, and she's sort of really... Fun. She's British Empire youth. She's very much British Edwardian fantasy, Edith Nesbitt heroine. Yeah. And I've got to say, I love her 
Yeah. I think she's, <laughs> she's she amazing. is what, she is, isn't she? Yeah. Do you, were you thinking watching this, what would season, is it season 10 have been like if we'd had Amelia rather than Amy Pond? Oh, I, season five. Yeah. 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 I mean, where am I these days? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, yeah, it's as soon as we did have Amelia in that series, I did kind of go, this reminds me of Susie and you know, she's, She's plucky and she's got a bit of attitude without being precocious and irritating. She yeah. really propels the story too mm. when she's the one that goes off and picks up the, you know, the hooch that the <laughs> spangly man in the what the hell? That's why I'm dressed around like London this, like dressed like that. No, well, yes. uh, that's why I'm dressed like th- that for this recording. You know, like, I did, shaved my chest and put some serious eye makeup on. I did wonder. In fact, um, I, w- dear listener, we've had to close the blinds because passing planes were reflecting light <laughs> on the of the chest and blinding local wildlife. Do you remember that story burying um, whom we own because he's Paris in the myth makers. But as Alan, do you remember him telling that story of the, the um, Thal extras, the big muscly blokes hanging around in the background uh, were mostly costermongers from Covent Garden, big burly yeah. blokes with, you know, with Cockney accents who were apparently constantly blowing kisses to each other and camping it up and trying to do Kenneth Williams voices while they were just trying to shoot or just off the... Because they were wearing eye makeup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I heard that they didn't want their sh- chest shaved. No. Yeah, they had to be paid extra. But, and weren't they sort of placated by the fact that it was sort of gorgeous female makeup assistants doing it? That, yeah, that helped. But I think they also got a couple of extra shillings to shave their chests. <laughs> That's outrageous. Imagine what yeah. they would have done for a quid. <laughs> <laughs> With, I mean, the files look stupid in the TV transmitted version. However. But they don't look <laughs> as stupid as they do in the film. I know. It's like, uh, we, we are peaceful <laughs> agrarian farmers who spend two hours doing <laughs> an every day. What the hell is going on? Crazy. But yeah, um, get, but we can blame Sus- we can blame George Powell again, though. Can't oh we? yes, yeah. it's very George Powell. It's Can't very George But the thing <laughs> yeah. is, the Eloy are not. The whole point of the time machine is you're not meant to emulate the Eloy. It's no good being beautiful and fabulous if you're going to be picked off one by one because you don't know how to fight. So the 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 moment that we were talking about is Susan's hero moment. Yeah, like, oh. where she goes through and in both in both the TV version it's and a great- the. And the, and the film, she goes to the TARDIS to retrieve the anti-radiation gloves, uh, drugs from the Spanish uh, goat. Yes. From, yeah, <laughs> from the uh, from the <laughs> that's two for the price of one. <laughs> um, from the TARDIS and bring it back to the Dalek city. Um, and in in the TV version, Susan is sort of sort of tragic and flailing her arms around and and panicking and things. But Susie in the film is actually she's scared. Um, she's got a much bigger set to contend with. You know, like it's, it's <laughs> more frightening for she's her. She's actually able to run instead of running on the spot while people slap all the twigs. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Right. Um, and so uh, look, she still sells it as a scary moment, but she's just a little bit more Absolutely. comfortable. I think she's watch. amazing. She saves this film in every scene. She 
she's in. Um, I wouldn't have said that 20 years ago. <laughs> what's, what's doubly amazing and a little bit troubling about how brave Susie is is it seems to happen at the expense of the character of Barbara. Because <gasps> Jen, doesn't it, though? Jenny yeah. Linden as Barbara, there is, you know what, there is nothing wrong with her performance. And I like Jenny Linden in other films I've seen mm, her in yeah. at the time. She's got a lovely comic style and she's, yeah, she's mm. terrific. But she, her Barbara is given very little to do. I mean, a lot Barbara, of backcombing. She's given, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah really. <laughs> Even more backcombing than Jackie Hill, I guess. Yeah, say. she that, makes Jackie Hill look like Sinead O'Connor, yeah, really. The, I mean, the, it's, the hair uh, is higher, so she is closer to God. Um, but the weird thing is, in the TV version, Barbara sort of gets. Barbara does get a few sort of key moments over the course of the TV version of the Daleks. There's the cliffhanger she gets. There's coming up with the way to blind the Daleks. Yes, the cliffhanger, which is so brilliant. And, in fact, that whole... She does... And, like, I think um, Jenny's Barbara does sort of wander through the corridors, the very boring-looking corridors, Yeah, yeah, they're not anywhere near as exciting. And that cliffhanger is, is... There's no sort of suspense to it. Later on, with the whole blinding the Dalek thing, you don't see Barbara come up with that idea. She's just suddenly got the food, the mucky food in her hand. Actually, she does. She does sort of pick it up and look at it thoughtfully. So wait, this is they're in the prison. They're in the uh, prison. They're trying to escape. She shoves some she play-doh shoves the on the Dalek on. eye. Yeah, and but the thing that's really missing, I think, which helped to find Barbara's character in the TV version, is when she's actually agreeing with the Doctor and saying, "No, we should leave. We, you know, we've got to save ourselves." And Ian brings her around. Jenny Lind- yeah. Jenny Linden's Barbara doesn't do any of that. She's completely silent throughout that whole thing in the film, and it's kind of like the two men sort out the problem. Yeah. It's a great scene in the TV version too, and I think we did talk about it uh, mm. when we covered it in the podcast. They have a proper marital dispute, you see, and yeah, Barbara, yeah. about the ethics There's of this. There's a big blow-up. Yeah, yeah. And so really everything, and that's going to be an issue in both films, everything cool that Barbara does in the uh, in the TV, TV version gets taken away and given to the men to do uh, in the films, and it's a huge shame. I can barely it, think of anything that's... It's totally sucks, and, which is why Toby, I think, gets to shine, really. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. she's not she's sexualised yet, so she's allowed to actually be part of the story, and, yeah, can we yeah. get a little bit she, feministy here? No, well, she doesn't need to be protected. She doesn't need to be... Uh, you know, patronised and coddled. Yeah, because yes. no one wants to date her yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Give her five years' love and you'll be just the same as the rest of it. Oh, where's Jermaine Greer? God, we've got to wait another five years. <laughs> <laughs> um, in general, the story's streamlined at the expense of characterisation and relationship. Because on the TV, because I suppose it was part of an ongoing narrative, you've got lots of character development for the four regulars in the TV version. You don't have that here. Um, the characters are so changed and their rough edges are so smoothed out to be that family-friendly thing yeah. that either by convenience or design, that means it's just, as you said earlier, Nathan, it's the series of events that happen rather than the soul of the TV version. It's just the plot and the building blocks. You do have to remember, though, that uh, that the TV version has huge amounts of padding, and that's yes. something that I said at the time. <laughs> like, it is it is at the expense of some of the horrendous padding. And in particular, there's that that appalling indefensible thing that got the Jenny Laird Award when, when I did it before, which was we finished the story in four episodes, the Doctor pats his pockets and goes, ooh, you know, I've left the fluid linker, I must have dropped the time ring in the Khaled city or or something, you know, we'd all better go back. <laughs> um, 
road trip. <laughs> um, and here that's streamlined, you know what I mean? The Daleks yeah. take the fluid link from the Doctor uh, and everyone mysteriously forgets about its existence mm. and has to go back. But in fact, that leads to a really sort of cool set piece in the film where the, the Thals are attacking uh, the Dalek city from the front and then Barbara and Ian and... Antoninus and uh, <laughs> heading Tinnitus, around the, yeah. Yeah, Tinnitus and Anodyne Tinnitus are heading and <laughs> are heading around the back going via the pipes. Um, but all of that is so much so. Like, I think we get a whole episode of them going across that abyss. Oh my god! And the abyss <laughs> is actually so, an abyss. Oh, they go across the abyss. The abyss looks fantastic. Um, Anatididus has a giant panic attack, or whatever he's called. Pissy fit. He, and and in the in the Terry Nation thing, because Terry Nation is just horrible. <laughs> um, he has a sort of huge panic. He he falls down the thing, and then he cuts himself. Yes. Um, yeah. He cuts the rope yeah. and plummets Be- to his death. He wa- because he wasn't a man and because he experienced fear, he must die. Thank yeah, yeah. you, Terry Nation. But in and this it's also one... because he's the queerest character in the narrative, so yeah. therefore he must die. Yeah. But in, in <laughs> film, he's just mysteriously okay. Yeah, like, I know, I cut myself off, but then there was this convenient ledge exactly shaped by my hand, but you're kind of like, you know what, we don't care, we like you. <laughs> and so he survives. I mean, it is... Well, who else is going to do all their hair and makeup? He's yeah. intrinsic to Thal <laughs> To Thal culture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh, dear. So what do we reckon about the first one? How are you feeling about it? You know what, I still... Even though it's got its problems and it's nowhere near as good as the TV version, I still enjoy it. It's a nice bit of 60s pop cinema. Yeah. And I think what really helps is, unlike some of the problems we had with um, Season 3 of Doctor Who, there's not as much in it that is offensive. For the fact that Barbara is a weakened character, we do have the fact that Susan is is strengthened because of that. And, you know, there is never any question, because quite often Susan on the TV show, there was the whole thing of, no, you can't do that, you're a young woman. But there's never any question that Susie can't do things. And, in fact, she's the most intelligent character in the She's thing. the most responsive to the narrative within the narrative, isn't yeah. she? It's to the point that Cushing is really just there to be a mirror to the original series. He's much, he has much less content and flavour than Billy had. Yeah, absolutely. Could yeah. it be Susan Who and the Daleks? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. And <laughs> I, think, I think for that, for that alone, that's the great success of the film, that Susie is such a strong character and really she's written the way she should have been written on television. And look, I mean, it is yes. more accessible, it is more straightforward. The Daleks goes on for like three hours, doesn't yes. it? I mean, it is, it's a bit of a slog. And you know, it was we should really say it goes on for almost two months. <laughs> yeah. But look yeah. at how people would yeah. have watched yeah. it. No, no, of course. And would have forgotten the first third by the time the, the, the latter third was on. Yeah, so. yeah. No, I mean, that's fair enough. No one was forced to sit through it uh, for three hours in the 60s. Um, this does sand off you know, the rough edges of the TV show. But I think the rough edges of the TV show are what I really like about it. Yeah, I know. agree. But seeing it as adults, as a kid, this was very beautiful when we first got colour TV in 77, 78. And I should add, in Australia, I think much like Britain, it was on pretty much at least twice a year. I remember it uh, being able to see it 
around the same time. Cat Weasel was repeated in the summer holidays, so was Doctor Who and the Daleks. Was it on the ABC? Like, um, it... I, I seem to... I can't recall that far back. Okay. We can check it out for you. But just sitting there with a big box of Lego, making lots of the, scr- the crunchy noises that you get, really did help heighten the narrative <laughs> while watching this. I, I remember when I was a kid, um, it was once or twice a year... Um, Channel 7's midweek movie in the school holidays. That's so, right. It was, movie. it was 7, yeah. Although the first time I Four, saw nine. the next film, um, it was a late night movie on Channel 10 and we taped it. So is this a segue onto the next film? I think it is a segue. Oh, so sound effect. Music. I don't know what the sound effects I are. I don't know what I'm using. <laughs> Gosh, I, I'm just thrown in. Oh, sorry. If that was more. fantastic. No, no. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm chatting away. Well, <laughs> can I... Am I allowed to have my little moment of indulgence here as we break out the albino chocolate crackles so covered what? in foul eye makeup? Now, what, we what we have here... <laughs> eagle, Edible ball bearings. Eagle-eyed viewers. Eagle-eyed viewers. Um... <laughs> eagle-eyed viewers of the second <gasps> film they may have noticed etheric beam locators. <laughs> <laughs> eagle-eyed viewers of the second film may have noticed one or two subtle uh, signs of sugar puffs in the background of the second film. Yeah, of course. Now, I did my research, <laughs> and um, sugar puffs aren't really available anymore as sugar puffs. They are available as um, honey puffs in the United States. Yeah. And as honey, something else in uh, Great Britain. And for those of you who don't know, dear listener, I was just in the United States and actually found... And known as Honey Puff to many of his <laughs> dearest friends. Well, I found a box, but I didn't have room to bring it back in my luggage. And that's when I discovered that here in, here in Australia, sanitarium make, makes honey wheats. Oh. Because what sugar puffs were, they were sugar-encrusted puffed wheat. Yes. Do so we... Uh, is we it can, product placement? Is it? Well, can we contextualise this? So all throughout the underground and all throughout the film, the second film... There are posters for sugar. There are very, very subtle, five foot tall posters. Yes, is it product placement? Do you think they paid for it? It's got to be. It's sponsorship. It it bankrolled the film. Really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you can relive family and friends your memories of waking up in the middle of the bloody blitz (laughs) with this box. If it's really going to sell it, (laughs) what do you want to say about? Yes. Wait, wait. So what these are? These are. These, dear listener, are Dalek sugar puff treats, and uh, so they are primary colours, as you can see on our website, and also I've gone out and got coloured edible ball bearings, or couchos, I believe they're pronounced. So, gentlemen, would you like to try try a Dalek sugar puff treat? You've also verisimitudinally... Matched matched the etheric beam locators. They're blue in the first film, but a lovely, pleasing shade of mauve in the second film on the drone. I'm going to grab a yellow one. (laughs) Oh, Uh, And they're very simple to make, dear listener. As you'll see, they're they're, um, only a few ingredients. I probably should have grazed these. We're all enjoying the foley at home right now, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, it's all (laughs) going through everyone's Apple eye buds. (laughs) I bug. As they're known. So earpods. Cheers to everyone they at home. They are literally called earpods from Rise of the Cybermen. That's what they're called. They certainly are. Well, I really think this second film is interesting. 
as a film, not just as a little bit of hooniness. What or you, baking uh, inspiration. Well, is it the Blitz? I mean, is it... It's several things at once. That's why I reckon it's interesting. If we can have my usual indulgence here... Um, I like the way it starts. It's, it's got several styles of filmmaking all thrown in at once, just as what was happening with world cinema at the time, mainstream cinema was a conflation of several different things all happening and you had the Hollywood musical doing really well on top of well, the colours and the lights, on, mm-hmm. on top of some of the styles that were post-war. We start off with this thing that's almost Kubrick. It, it almost presages... Um, <laughs> almost! Almost Kubrick. Almost Clockwork <laughs> Orange. In that neorealistic style of the Bach cantata being played over the hood, sitting oh, in the car. I love that. And it's very much you're waiting for Alex to come along with the conch. But this that yes. style is actually post-war European actually starting off with Italians, and the Germans are doing it as well. Um, the Bach cantata transposes to a love. Then you get a beautiful Michel Legrand free jazz lilting score. And it's really kind of a violent scene. I actually yes. thought I was quite surprised. Because, you know, poor old Wilf really gets it in the nudges, yeah. doesn't he? So, so it's in the it's the opening, okay? So Wilf, Tom Campbell, um, Tom Campbell. Sir Bernard Plod, Evans. Sir, yes. PC Plod, Tom Campbell. Is it Sir Bernard? So I believe he, uh, yes, he's uh, he's been. He is in my heart. Yes. And, anyway, and of so course he is. All, uh, actually, no, I won't get ahead of myself. So he's a copper it. doing his beat in London. That's right, and it opens with a, a villain in the car, yeah. and you you get that the bark played on the piano, and it's partly there, I think, to serve as a cue to indicate that we've gone back there in a very timey wimey and Stephen Moffaty kind of way in the final scene because you actually get the same scene with the same very distinctive musical cue, and of course. Uh, a lot of TV screenings cut out that pre-title sequence. Gosh, Is that would pre- be a bit tragic. May- maybe do. not these days, but because it was violent. Uh, well, I think it's just because violent. I think just because it's slow. The same reason the MGM wanted to cut out somewhere over the rainbow. Oh my god! I know. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but, no, but you get those little moments of using a classical score. Oh, and the prisoner does it beautifully as well. Mm-hmm. The, a lot film did it. Schlesinger did it. Film was doing the sort of thing. You get a piece of well-known classical music, or in this case, baroque, over a moment of ultra violence. Mm. It's um, not quite ultra violence, but it is. So Doctor Who, that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. much ultra violence. There's a significant episode of um, of Danger Man that. Paper Chase, it's called, with Joan Greenwood and Patrick McGowan. And Pat, there's, it, the scene goes for about three or four minutes of, of John Drake being beaten up to a very similar piece of, of bark on the harpsichord. Right. It's just a thing that folk were doing. This, then we switch suddenly and violently to London Blitz. It worked really well on TV, but I'm looking at this thinking, Come on, you're six weeks out of winning the World Cup. Britain is ruling the world right now, and you're wanting to take everybody back to... And and what's more, because it's such a bigger production value than the TV version, it looks so realistic. Doesn't it? And it looks beautiful. And the model work, when you see the girders land on the the police box shell, that's all a model work. And the the glass paintings are lovely. Get to that Mm. in a second. But what you then... We jump then from neorealism to um, what was called trauma film or literally uh, rubble film. And for, from 46, 47, 48, 49, you had people like Vittorio De Sica, Bicycle Thieves, you might remember that amazing film. Very sad. The little moments 
are this that actually mirror images in that. They really are, and I'll find them, I'll stick them up, I promise this time I will. Um, <laughs> the Tulema film was a, a style um, most eponymous with um, Wolfgang Storter, and it, I'll spell his name on the, on the website. I'll put it in the in the show notes. Or, or he's a more, or more significantly more well-known, Roberto Rossellini's Germany Year Zero, which is also 1947, and there are moments, okay, there aren't anodyne Daleks, but the kids in the rubble, the young boy, it's that's what it's harking back to. So we've suddenly gone from London now, a bit mod, a bit, a bit happening now, a little bit of ultraviolence, to why are we back in the Blitz? Even though we've oh, gone into the future. So it is. It is like going back in time. Yeah. This future thing and we go back in time. To I just think it's an appalling mistake. And just to bring up the end of this, I reckon this is why the film bombed. Because the rest of it's actually not that bad. But the... Um, I mean, how much was the Blitz present in the TV version? Well, you did see... Um, oh. You really only saw rubble in the area where they first landed. It's true. But for, for me, my memory of it, first time I saw Dalek Invasion of Earth and subsequently the, the most significant image from the TV episode are the um, CUs and middle close-ups of Jackie Hill running through the wasteland yes. looking terrified. That's the image, that's, which is entirely Ross, Roberto Rossellini. But, the, I mean, the thing that's absent from the film, which is so iconic um, in the in the TV show, is the Trafalgar Square stuff and the Westminster Bridge stuff, where, yeah. where the yes. Daleks... Yes. You know, that's completely absent. There's, there's no tagging. No. no. And the thing is, that, <laughs> I think there's, a, there's like, a, a painting of St Paul's Dome in the background. But uh, where, are the the where, where are the vetoed elephants? Where are the vetoed everything? <laughs> you know, in the TV version, that... In the TV version, that is where the whole Daleks as fascism and Nazism really started. Because yeah. you've got the, you know, you've got the Daleks. They have invaded us, and they are wandering up and down in front of our landmarks, doing the Nazi salute. Yeah, you know, and that doesn't happen in the film. No, and that's and as we said again at the time, there was a whole genre of of stories about you know what the what if the Nazis had won? Yeah, you know, like even even before that, like surprisingly early. Um, that exists as a as a thing, and so that's what they're playing off. And clearly, it's still present in the in this film because you've got collaborators and you've got you know the evil Philip Maddock, more of yeah, Philip Maddock, more of whom later is the best thing in the entire film. Um, and so you do have all of those sort of things that are that do hark back to World War Two, but, but they, what you don't get is the absolutely you know best moment of Dalek Invasion of Earth, which is that incredible location shooting. But they don't get the, they don't honestly have the patience for it because they immediately jump into a whole other pop style, which I would say is also very dated and is much more like the um, neo-surrealism or the Louis Buñuel style. There are moments in this that are very much like Buñuel's The Young and the Damned. Now, Buñuel was the collaborator with Salvador Dali, who later went on to make his own films and was very much... There are very... The the whole thing of that gorgeous... Don't you love how they've taken a flying saucer and um, mashed it with a 1953 Ford Thunderbird? That's now... The Daleks go around in a hot rod. But there's all... The mashup of all these different significances with Pop Art on the top is is pure new surrealist cinema. And those two together made um, Unchien Andalau, didn't they? Yes. 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 Which, of course, does have not quite examples of ultraviolence, but sort of... Microviolence, you know, you get 
very focused images of very violent things happening. Yeah. And in this film, the Daleks actually become a bit scarier again. The one that comes out of the water, which, by the way, that first episode is told in ten minutes, and that includes about three minutes of original material and titles. Mm-hmm. And it um, does it pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it comes out of the water at breakneck speed, and you are actually scared of it this time, rather than the TV version, which is... Ah, yeah. Ah, and then it does a jolly little Ursula Andrus hip shake. Did you notice that? Just at the end of it, just to sort of go and look at me. But also, um, when, when the saucer lands and they're escorting slaves and that one makes a break for it, and the Daleks hunt him down and no one will help him. Is that David Graham? It looks a lot like it's David, not David the Graham. Shop. Um, it is... It's actually a professional stuntman, and when he climbed up on the awning and fell through, he broke his leg. Really, he does. Because I was and he we just were watching keep, it. He keeps on going. It was amazing. We were saying yeah. it looks a really violent fall through three mm-hmm. stories. Yeah, so. and the thing is, he then has to get up again. So he sort of half gets oh. up, and then he's shot down because he kind of went, "Well, I can't do it again, so I'll just mm-hmm. get on with it." Wow. And because of that, That's because art. of his frenzied <laughs> action, yeah. that makes the Daleks scary again. Plus. With the exception of the Daleks in charge, this time around, all the Daleks are uniform. They're that beautiful silver and blue, mm. which is one of my... That's one of my favourite Dalek designs. It's less pop art, yeah, isn't and it? More, it's much we, more like the you show. Know, we are soldiers. We mean business. And we, we are here in uniforms. And yeah. we get them on the streets at night, lit, mm. front lit and back lit, and they look amazing. Yeah. Lots of good things in this. And it's, maybe it's the whole tooting back yawning more of the scary, furry, dunny effect that having them in London does work. It really does. It's certainly a better directed film than the first one. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot more going on for the viewer. But the first one felt like a a Edwardian fantasy story just transposed. This one is doing huge amounts of things all over everybody and to everyone. It's Quatermass and Triffords and... And Chuck Jones as well. If you leap forward to the saucer scenes, you've got... Um, Bernard Cribbins doing Chuck Jones's Daffy Duck in the twenty fourth yes. and a half century <laughs> with the that food machine and the same helmet as Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, it really is. Can we have a little moment? Do we want to jump forward to the to the saucer scenes? So, so Wilf is in there. We haven't got the um, uh, companions from the previous film back, and I don't know why. Why is Jenny Linden not in this. I, Why don't, is, I don't know. I, I she had a career by now. <laughs> I assume it's just availability. I mean, Roy Castle was in very high demand. Yeah, they were lucky to get... No, he was a big... Well, Vaudeville was still a big thing, which is why you're getting the slapstick. And he's actually a very, very talented dancer. Yes. Really? Yeah. Yes. And so he was, he, did he was too busy dancing and being straight. He was, yeah, he, he, really. was, he was the uh, Michael Crawford of mm. his generation. And you know what, I imagine... And he really was. And one of the highest paid stars mm. in Britain. So I imagine if they couldn't get one of them, they probably just went, you, you know, there's meant to be a unit, a relationship there, so... So, yeah, yeah. So, so we have Louise instead of Barbara. Yes. Louise who? And we have... Yes. Uh, and we and we have Bernard Cribbins as Tom Campbell, yes. and and like we all love Bernard Cribbins because Wilf Donna's grandfather is so incredibly fantastic, mm. and part of the fun of watching it now, which yeah. wouldn't have been present when you first watched it, is seeing little Wilf moments yes. in Tom Campbell, <laughs> especially they, in his face, just the sort oh, of they just make you love him so much. <laughs> Do you notice how much the camera focuses on Cribbins in this cinema? He's, he's in this film. He's given a lot 
of close-ups. I think mm. he's actually extraordinary to watch. Too. He's really good. And so the scene you were talking about, he's dressed in vinyl. Bernard Cribbins in vinyl. Yeah. Thank you, um, Rod. <laughs> um, so he's dressed in vinyl. Uh, he's pretending to be a robo man. Um, trying to goose step and falling out. Yeah, the Robomen are all... And the Robomen are sort of crummy. Who dresses them in vinyl? Like, how each does other. that happen? Each they dress other. each other. They're well, forced they're... at gunpoint to dress each other in vinyl <laughs> Haven't you noticed before that? undergoing the process. I have been to San Francisco recently. Yeah. That does happen. <laughs> that, that moment where, where there's the goose stepping, he's falling, out of, he's falling out of step, is actually intrinsically violent and intrinsically frightening because we know that there's an ontological threat. If he does fall out of step, it, it, this this silly sequence, unlike all the Roy Castle stuff where it's just Pratt falls in the first film, if this goes wrong, he'll, he'll be noticed and shot. Except, so, uh, I have, uh, except that there aren't really any Daleks there watching them. Oh, one of the other guys. You don't you know. know. We, we don't the point know is there's that. tension yeah. where there wouldn't have been in the first yeah. film. It is tension and comedy, both yeah. in the one yeah. which is what we, yeah. And one heightens the other, and yeah. that's a classic thing to do. And he is wonderful in it. I mean, he is really terrific. And Bernard Cribbins was sort of a star on the rise. This was a couple of years after he was um, the star of Carry On Jack. Or Carry On Columbus, as it was remade. <laughs> um, With Julian Clary playing the part of Bernard Cribbins. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, dear listener. Rick Mayle was in that, too. As and and, and <laughs> Alexia Sale. John Pertley was in it as Bernard, Bernard Cribbins as well. Because yeah. everyone The reanimated corpse of John Pertley, <laughs> I would think of that. <laughs> oh, no, it was 1993. Oh, okay. So John he was, was still with us. Yes. Apologies. Yes. John, John and Jim Dale. But uh, um, moving, moving back. Um, Bernard Cribbins was... He he was in a very interesting stage in his career at that point because he was getting lead roles as a romantic lead, as he is in this film, as he was in Carry On Jack, but he was also the comedy lead. He, he was the pratfalling guy who got the girl at the end of the film. It was kind of... It was a coup for them to get Roy Castle because he was big, and it was a coup for them to get um, Bernard Cribbins as well. But I think Bernard Cribbins is far more successful in the formula of the story. His comedy in the story doesn't distract in a way I felt that the Roy Castle comedy did. Which, you know, it's not the fault of Roy Castle. But just Bernard Cribbins seems a bit more naturalistic and fits in a bit. Yeah, and he has a bumbling, innocent, blokey charm, a child blokey charm that isn't in the first picture. And But, I mean, for me, it is just impossible to divorce him from Wilf. And <laughs> I've just rewatched um, The End of Time Parts 1 and 2. And, like, you just see moments of Wilf in his face yeah. and things. It's just glorious. It's, uh, it's, it's really special, I think. And so anyone who hasn't seen it, who's familiar with the uh, new series, should go and watch it immediately mm, because absolutely. it is really funny for that reason. Can we talk about Louise who? Yes, and we're please. done. I think we've said everything that needs to be said. Well, so she has a, she has moments of drama. She's you know she's escaping the Roberman and she find, suddenly finds a nice slidey pantry cupboard door with the same door handles that your grandma had on her <laughs> cupboard and goes into what looks like the gimp closet yes. with uh, all the Roberman helmets on a sh- on a normal shelf far too high for a Dalek to reach and then all the whips nicely arrayed on little on little hooks. You know, she, and she has a moment of pause there and she thinks, "What the hell am I doing in this yeah. film?" <laughs> she just stays there for about half an hour. Oh, yeah, you know, she's a game girl. She, <laughs> she, she's wearing a lovely outfit. 
Well, but she that actually really is a sort of theory about that. Do you that, that she later when we found it, read that she later ends up running a ladyboy bar in Cooda Beach, Bangkok, <laughs> Sherlock homosexuals and <laughs> that never <laughs> and happened. Well, I mean, she's kind of dressed. Are we, are we dressed talking as, about Louise? Who or Jane? Well, <laughs> <laughs> she, kind of, why is she dressed as a, a future campy Benedict Cumberbatch in a well, girly, yeah, it's a sort of tweedy Holmes outfit. I right? love it. I think See, she looks fabulous. What I think it is. It's the producers said, we obviously can't afford Diana Rigg. Let's get someone who looks like her, put her in an outfit that Diana Rigg would wear and cash in on the Avengers thing. She's, she's wearing the, the courage little yellow go-go boots, yeah. She's hugely pretty. I mean, she's she's gorgeous, but yeah. she's given literally nothing to do. I mean, if, if, you want, if you want someone to emulate Diana Rigg, you shouldn't get all of Barbara's cool moments from the TV version and then give them to other people. So Barbara gets to, you know, mow down... Dalek's um, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Which that's is now bloke stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. bloke stuff. And she's even wearing Pertwee's Inverness cape in this. She could have done <laughs> it really right. well. I love that you mentioned that Bedford van thing, because this is where it really just drains, and it's, it's, it starts off, it looks so potent, you've got six, seven, eight Daleks, and they get into the red Bedford van. Do we think we actually get an inkling into Dalek religion in this moment? We realise that Daleks worship the god of Bedford. <laughs> because not only do they not fire on this little red dinky car when it comes to them. They scarper out of their shells. When the things get knocked over, they're hollow. Yeah, so, yeah no, terrible. Emergency temporal shift. <laughs> only, only, ground, only ground crew Dalek, only drone Dalek. Saucer Daleks go, no, we'll bugger the, bugger the hell out of the bottle. Yeah, we'll blow we'll it. Bugger the fuck and then they come in and, just, and, and bang, and then it's gone. And it melts down, and it's just like you burnt your talk corgi cars back in the 70s. It's, <laughs> that's a great moment. Except, of course, it's a little bit... I don't, You think, where's Roberta Tovey in the scene? And suddenly, um, Wiley gets up and well, there she was. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Robert, well, I mean, Roberta Tovey gets things to do. She gets the, things done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she leaves a note for the Doctor, which he completely misses, despite the fact it's huge and written on a wall. And which, foregrounded in the shot, like yeah, the, the director foregrounds which, it. funnily enough, would be used by Derek Sherwin later in The Invasion. You can't lose yeah. a wall, so write yeah. a message on the wall. Ah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. But, I mean, the really interesting thing about character in this film, unlike the first film, Characters here are changed. Jenny, for instance, is completely absent. The character of Jenny. Thank God, I hate. I Jenny. know you hate Jenny. No. Um, Louise replaces Craddock in the plot because Craddock gets robotized here, whereas in the TV version he travels with Ian. Instead, it's Louise traveling with the Ian character of Tom. But she doesn't actually do anything. No, and, well, and really neither does Craddock. Craddock. Re- kind of just is an exposition machine for saying, well, this happened to Earth and that happened to Earth and, oh, there's my dead brother. Oh, I'll kill us both. Susan replaces Barbara. She doesn't drive the truck, yeah, but Susan and Wyler, who replaces, who replaces Jenny, travel along together. Yeah. And there's a lovely little character moment where Wyler and Susan are wandering, wandering around a wood on their way to Bedfordshire or wherever they're heading. And um, Susan runs ahead and hides behind a tree and jumps out and boom! <laughs> Which is like the one kiddie, childish thing she does in two films. And he just turns around, knock that off! Yeah, and don't do that in this yeah, post-apocalyptic wasteland. It serves no plot purpose, it's just trying. And but it really works, be- yeah. It, possibly because, you know, Susie is about seven and David Campbell is still in his early 20s. The Doctor travels with David instead. And that leads to it's another... It's not David Campbell, though. Of no, course. it's... Ray, isn't it? No, no, he's David, but he doesn't get a last name no, because Tom has the last name Campbell. Of Campbell, that's right. Uh, but it leads to 
another one of my favourite scenes in the film, which is the Doctor and David are walking along and looking at a map. And um, the guy who played David, I've forgotten his name, Ray Brooks. Ray Brooks. Um, He's he, good. He, he, was an, he, was, he had just started a film called The Knack, which is why in the trailers he's the boy with The Knack. So he was kind of England's answer. The Knack answer. and How to Get It. It's yeah. a great little film too. He was kind of England's answer to James Dean. You know, he was this young heartthrob. So they give him this rather incongruous action scene. He and Doctor Who are wandering along and checking the map and what have you, and suddenly a rover man appears out of nowhere in this forest, and Ray Brooks throws Peter Cushing to the side, has a fight scene, deals with the guy, and Peter Cushing just gets up and picks up the map. Yes, we're headed to Bedfordshire, as if nothing's happened. (laughs) And it's a great ultra-cool moment. (laughs) It is, it is, really. Do you know what I've just remembered is, doesn't the transmitted version have crocodiles in the sewer? Yes. Where are the crocodiles in the sewer? <laughs> yes. Why do we not get that? Done that. We but don't get the slither. Thunderbirds did that. <laughs> they did. Where's the slither? That's a very effective. Maybe that's one mode. of the reasons that I feel. <laughs> well, also, there there are characters referenced that we never get to see in this film. The most significant one for me, and we haven't got to Eileen Way yet. Is <laughs> 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 is you know when they, they first go to the underground Rebel HQ and meet. The bloke in the wheelchair. Dortmund. Dortmund. Dortmund in the who looks like Kenneth Branagh. What's the first... <laughs> like, exactly, exactly like Kenneth like Branagh. But what's the first thing they say when they open the door? Did you notice the password? Mildred Coatwire. No, I don't know what that <laughs> That's is. That's the first thing they say. Mildred Coatwire. When are we going to see Mildred Coatwire? She never appears. <laughs> oh, I think it's Eileen Way. <laughs> playing the part of Mildred Coatwire and she's unspecified. as a, And they're all bloody terrified of her. As they should be. Because she has two or three, just there's two or three moments on the center of the screen and she's the scariest thing. You don't she, need a She's slither. far scarier than the TV counterpart. Wow. Character. Isn't she a great actor? So, yeah. But it is... So, of, one of, of the of things... the woman who sells humans Coma. for soup. Yeah. yeah. We sacrifice all of this... And Sheila of, Stiefel, of course, who's been starring who the younger woman. And, and, <laughs> so, it's terrifying. We sacrifice all of this fantastic location shooting in London, which we get in the TV version, but we do get this fantastic location stuff in the country, which I think works really well in the second half of the film mm. uh, and the... Um, and so Susie and Wyler end up, uh, you know, at the house of the collaborators who make the frocks for the the, the people who are working in in the Bedford mine. And of Hence course, the coat it's, wire. Yes. it's it's Eileen Way. And the the house is beautiful and spectacular. Like the whole thing looks great. And Eileen Way is every bit as menacing as mm-hmm. uh, she is mm-hmm. in. Uh, in um, creature from the pit, the creature from the pit, <laughs> and, and old mother, and, and, and old she mother. really, she really still, she's a much and better actress than she's know, given credit for. I could be wrong because I watched these films before I went to America. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I believe in Eileen's White House that there is no fire. <laughs> <laughs> and if I am wrong, it's still a good joke. So you know, don't write in. <laughs> With this whole, you know, Louise is kind of just put there to look like Emma Peel in the trailer. And then, so once you get in, you know, you won't realise that she doesn't have much of a character because cinema's already got your money. Um, Barbara is sidelined as well, but in both films, the character is... Sorry, Barbara is... Barbara in in the first film. Oh, sorry, yes, yes. Um, So Barbara is sidelined as well in the first film. And... it seems like the attitude is you can only have one strong woman per film. That's and it's right. got to be and Roberta. Got, and it's got to be Roberta Toby. Now, of course, it, I have no objection to Roberta Toby being a strong character, but it just feels so 
That you can only have one strong woman per film. Well, I, I don't even know why why Louise is there. I guess because you want, like, you've got the old guy and then you want a male and female lead. Yeah. But Louise is, doesn't do anything. Mm. Louise is there um, as a... Mo- she's there as a motivation for Tom Campbell to impre- yeah. impress her and save her. And, yeah. you know, we shouldn't still have to talk about this in 2014, but that was my problem with the new Godzilla film. Spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, the women in the film exist solely as motivations for the male characters. It's really poorly done. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it was a very good film. But, yeah. but they have no character other than... I've said this about that film as well. It mm. really stands out because you don't expect it anymore. But I guess in 1963, there was just a lot of unrevolution going on. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird because... In Although other, this is now 66. Yeah. So. It's, it's very strange because visually... Barbara and Louise are strong screen presences. You know, they've got a very strong silhouette. They're both wearing trousers. Yes. You know, they they are taking on what would be considered a modern feminine appearance. They are challenging the notions of femininity in the way they dress and in the way they appear. But then they're given nothing to do. It's very, very strange. And... I mean, it's particularly strange for Doctor Who, where women were getting strong roles. Mm. Mm. The outstanding parts of this film are the little bits that are inside it, little bits that are tertiary level. The best characters are the fleeting ones, and maybe that's a nice way to take away from a film you've mentioned, <laughs> that little moment with the Bedford, um, Bedfordshire map and that great little moment with, with David and the whole with, and the Doctor just completely ignoring it. It's the characters that are almost ignored. You've got Eileen Way and you've got Philip Maddock. He's spectacular. I mean, that performance is so great. He's the darkest thing in this film. But in the transcript, playing a kind of John le Carre figure, but a Smiley's People character from, you know, we just, again, we've, we've had the Burgess Scooby McLean scandals blown up. He's straight out of the Cambridgeshire backlot of nefarious baddies who you think you're on your side, but you can never trust them. He, I mean, it is a character that is in the TV version. But never meets the Doctor in the TV. Now, he gets killed quite quickly, actually, yes, in the yeah, TV by, by the Slither. By the Slither. Yeah. See, this is what you lose from not having the Slither in your film. Um, he's so sort of oleaginous, and so he sort of underplays it, and there's a mm, smile. Yeah. And, you, like, at the very end, I have to say, you know, I, I'd seen the film decades ago, um, but I actually thought at the very end where he offers to help that he was actually really offering to help. Yes, yes, and then when the doors it. open and the and the Daleks are all out there and the Doctor says, I mean, sorry, Doctor Who says, um, oh, you know, don't worry, I expected you to betray us. I was actually slightly disappointed because I actually thought he was, uh, you know, like he had enough self-interest to do the right thing. He was just terrific. And, mm. and you know, they're cooking the beans and, and the Doctor and, and David says, oh, they smell nice. And then he just kicks the beans over <laughs> for no reason. He's terrific. That scene with Doctor Who talking to, I think he's still called Ashton, um, Philip Maddox's character, I think that's Peter Cushing's best scene in the two films because his doctor finally shows a bit of guile the, yeah, when he steps yeah, when he yeah. steps out and just completely unflappable. That's all right. I expected you to betray me. You know, like, yeah, I can imagine Billy doing that. Yeah. But you know, Billy would have turned around and how dare you? But Peter Cushing's just like, no, I'm just very quiet. Mm. I'm very calm. But it's I, actually very sanguine. You very, know. And you're very cool. So, so he, will see, he knows he's going to be taken prisoner, whereas he's going to be shot. 
we will see more Philip Maddock in um, Series 6. Yes, yes. And uh, subsequently a bunch of times as well. Yes, but indeed. he's really a highlight, I think, in this film. He's fabulous. So can we go on to talk about why we didn't get a third film. There was some talk oh. of there being a third film. Yes. And we we did speak about this. We've touched on this briefly. Yeah. yeah. We've seen the trailer for it. Which we, we will put up the link again because it's brilliant. But Mr. Orson, so, well done. There was some talk about it being Keys of Marinus because it was yeah, three the, nation the, scripts yeah, that they just bought. didn't deal with Terry Nation. Yeah. But, I mean... The absolute lack of interest in the produ- on the production team's part in the Doctor and his companions suggests that it would have had to be the chase, which I just think would have been spectacular. See, I think you could have made Keys of Marinus put the Daleks in instead of the board, because they already uh, changed this script yeah, okay. a fair bit. Yeah. I put the Daleks in instead of the board, had them chasing them around Marinus, because you'll remember one of the complaints I had about Keys of Marinus is the board just no sits there doing them. nothing. And, you know, and you could have the Daleks chasing them. And that I think that would watch. have been really interesting. And also maybe go get away from the Doctor Who character and the TARDIS, just have different people doing it. It might have been... Yeah. No. Yeah. It's well, like to I see mean, the Daleks take, take, take first step rather than just I, the... I actually think they're just not really interesting enough. Daleks. Yeah, yeah. Maybe in the new series they've got a bit more interesting, but essentially, you know, they're just not... They can't move very well. They, they don't have CG on this. You do get a lot of... Um, distance shots of them just standing static around an explosion well, in, for too long. In fact, I actually found some of the direction in the Dalek ship in the in the second film really off-putting. So they're using a handheld camera, and it's really juddery, and, like, they're, they're tracking Daleks going up and down ramps and things, and the whole thing is sort of really off-putting and actually really not very much fun to watch. Um, and so I actually found the Daleks a bit... Tiresome. They're very uh, easily defeated. It, in the yeah. Too. Yes, oh, and that's fantastic. No, no, that's <laughs> awesome. Like that. I love the fact that they speed down corridors and fall down the hole. <laughs> you know, all of that sort of and, thing you know, is really Their terrific. safety rail seems to be made out of toenails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's terrific. All of that stuff is uh, is really great. But, but a lot of the direction is sort of really weird, and I just don't think they're very interesting. And I think, you know, I think that um, whoever told Terry Nation, no, we're not going to do a TV show based on uh, the Daleks. Whoever did that deserves a medal or an OBE or mm. something because it just would have been terrible. I mean, who's kind well, of interested? I think a few other people agreed with you <laughs> back in the day. Anyway, we'll get to the Daleks next episode. Yeah, we will. This, this film did have a bit of an afterlife. Uh, as well, in that um, I alluded earlier, there was an attempt at a radio series, and there was a pilot recorded, uh, Doctor Who Journey into Time. Now, very little is known about it. The recording's been lost, but the script has been published by Richard Bignall in an issue of his uh, magazine, Nothing at the End of the Lane, which focuses on unproduced Doctor Who, unmade stories, that sort of thing. Uh, And I believe there is a fan group trying to get a recording off the ground or who have recorded it. I haven't been able to find it in time for this podcast. If I find it during editing, I'll put up the link. Uh, But it was going to feature uh, Doctor Who, Susan, and a character called Mike. But there is no concrete um, indication of who was playing who. 
uh, it was publicised as a, a 52-episode radio series that would star oh, Peter Cushing. God. But there's no indication as to whether he actually recorded it. He was yeah. asked in his later years, and yeah. he said he couldn't remember it, but that doesn't mean he didn't remember record it. Remember you? To who am I? <laughs> we would um, have had to have a series of podcasts about that. See, yes. Been nice. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, but, what do you think of Cushing's performance overall in this? Um, I, I, I think it's... It's it's okay. It's inoffensive. But then he has moments where you think, yeah, he's a cinema actor, and you've mentioned two of yeah. them. Yeah, and it's just like, you know, I wish he could have played it like that the whole time, but I just think back to what my mother said of this was him going, I don't have to be a mean person. I can, I can just play this as a character who is exactly as he appears. He is a kind, old, intelligent, slightly mm. dotty man. I don't need to play someone with hidden depths, he which has- would have been very refreshing. I he, think. He has the worst wig this side of Keeper of Tarkin. Especially in this one. Go. <laughs> and in this second film, he has an autumn face. It's all shiny. He yes, does. it is. Which is weird, too, in itself. How good. Sort of Day of the Daleks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all Green Morrison. Yes, exactly. I think just a bit of slap that's left over from the Thals. And he's actually, you know, they're all playing, playing. The Thals gave him makeup yeah. to yes, in yes. the last w- film. William Hartnell snuck into his dressing room and replaced his foundation. <laughs> <laughs> With I do. Carol died. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to say, I just wonder how good this film or how different these films would have been if you'd had Billy and, say, you know, Jacqueline Hill or just, say, you know, a few of the other members of the original cast, but to have had Hartnell doing this, mm. I think he would have really shown. It would have been his chance to say, I am a cinema actor and I can fill the screen. And he's certainly done it before. Yes, he's been in... He's yeah, been in he was a film actor. I... I I think it would have been really interesting to see. I think what's nice, though, is there was a fan conception in the 80s that the reason it didn't have the TV cast was that the producers said, oh, they're not big names. I think and they might have also not been available for contract. Well, exa- exactly just right. Too busy. Verity has said in later years, yeah. you know, there was some talk, but we all agreed that they wouldn't have time to do it because we would have had to stop the TV series. And Hartnell didn't want to do that. He wanted to keep going on television rather than appear in the film. You know, if he... He he would have said, you know, maybe along the lines, we've already done that. Yes. I mean, you know, if he'd had the chance to do both, he probably would have jumped at it because he loved the role. But, yeah, it it is nice that they were considered to be... that's good. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm glad that they were. Interestingly... We've got another segment on what does Rob think. Yay! Um, shortly before we started watching everything in order, um, I said, oh, you'll probably like it more when we get up to the fourth Doctor. Hmm. And he said, oh, John Pertwee. Oh, and I said, no, 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 no. Um, hmm. John Pertwee's the third Doctor. No, Patrick Troughton's the, the third Doctor. And I just went, okay, Patrick Troughton's the third Doctor. Who's the second Doctor for you? Peter Cushing. Rob thought that Hartnell turned into Cushing. Did a couple of films. Did a couple of films. So Rob thought that, you know, you had the TV, they did a couple of films, and then it went back to TV afterwards. And I had to explain to him that, no, that's not the case. Now, Rod is a huge Godzilla fan. And the way he rationalised this, because, you know, when you thought something is true for a very long time, you need to remind yourself that it's not. The way he rationalised this was there was a rather terrible Godzilla film in 1998 
made in America. Just the one. Just the one. Matthew Broderick. (laughs) With Matthew Broderick. Um, And And Sarah um, Jessica Parker played the eponymous. Yes, she did. (laughs) Yeah, she was Godzilla. (laughs) But um, the the thing was... (laughs) Because they are married in what is known as real life in Hollywood. That that film is widely regarded by Godzilla fans as pretty terrible, as in... As in, you know, worse than a lot of Doctor Who fans consider the um, Paul McGann movie. Or yeah. even these movies, and he was just trying to say, but but he is the Doctor, and I said he's the Doctor in the same way that the American Godzilla from 1998 is Godzilla, and he said, oh, so he's Dino. I'm like, what? And he said, well, we call that Godzilla Gino. D- so Dino he's after Dino. the, after the f- no, Flintstones no, pet no. dinosaur. Doctor, I know this one. Doctor in name only. Because ah. that Godzilla, that terrible Godzilla from 1998, is Godzilla in name Gino. only. So he's Dino. That's And that's how I think of him now as well. So I don't refer to the Cushing Doctor anymore when I'm talking to Rod. I say, oh, yeah, it's the Dino movies, and he knows exactly what I'm talking about. I think you should call them Dwino. Doctor Who. Because uh, <laughs> otherwise it becomes a Rat Pack film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Frank what, what, what's your final word on the films, Dave? <laughs> oh, you know, they passed an agreeable amount of time. I did take two sittings to watch um, Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD. I will watch them again, do you know what I mean? But it is, I think I've said what I want to say. I think the thing that I like about the um, the transmitted versions with all their sort of slithers and and, you know, sort of ludicrous, unmotivated trips across abysses and stuff (laughs) um is that they are trying to do something new and different that they aren't particularly family friendly that they're a little bit rougher and a little bit stranger so you know these versions which look fantastic you know um and move at a sort of reasonable pace are still not as fun as the sort of creaky old tv show that i love i guess now, we've only got one recommendation for this month because, of course, there's less about these films than there is about anything else. But I'm actually recommending um, the Doctor Who Fanual, which was published earlier this year uh, through Soft Centre Limited. And uh, the uh, Fanual... She doesn't like the ones. <laughs> Fanual Broadcasting Corporation. And what this is, this is a um, world distributor's style annual for the Doctor Who films. And so it's got the sort of traditional um, stories and comic strips that you will find in your other Doctor Who annuals. It's been produced in hardback and softback, hard hard centre and soft centre, and uh, it is available to order online. We'll put up the links on the website. But it's just... It looks like it was produced in 1966. There's a variety of stories. The artwork style varies from story to story. I, I actually suspect Peter Capaldi was responsible <laughs> for some of the uh, fan art in it. I think, I think one of my favourite favorite pieces of art, and I'm going to show this off, is um, Barbara here in Day of the Automatons. And unfortunately we won't share the image online um, because we don't have the artist's permission, but I do heartily recommend you buy this book. The other nice thing is it um, pretty much fits in between the two films. There's some stories set after the last film, but that means it also covers where Barbara and Ian went and how Louise came in 
and what have you. And it's just the most glorious it book. It is a beautiful piece of, <laughs> of um, whatever it is. The, the same people um, did the, the wonderful book of Doctor Who 1965, which we've previously spoken yeah. about, and they are currently preparing the unit annual in the same style. Oh. So... As um, as Corporal Bell be in it? Corporal Bell is allowed to be in it. Fantastic. Um, I believe their stipulation was it can include the Brig, Captain Yates, uh, Sergeant Benton, Corporal Bell, Joe Grant, uh, and Harry Sullivan are the characters who can be included. Oh, and not Liz Sullivan. Not Liz. It's it is set. I believe they've planned to set it at at some point, any point between season eight and season ten. Um, and yeah, they just decided to cut it off there. But I, I suppose they could bring Liz in. I may be wrong, but um, we'll in, so. we'll include that link as well because I think it should be available for pre-order soon. But yeah, that's our recommendation: the uh, Doctor Who Fanual. So we'll include the links for that. How exciting! And there is a tiny segue in if you're wondering for the references of this film in popular culture. I believe. You can't go wrong or can't go further than listening to the first episode of Round the Horn, which subtly references the introduction of Ian in this scene with Doctor Who, when Julian sits with Kenneth Horn and says, you might have seen me on the telly where I'm alone in a room with a beautiful girl and we put out the lights and test chocolates (laughs) (laughs) to see which are the hard and which are the soft centres. And you know, you know that really this film could have been shot just like that. Yes, absolutely. But that's probably the saddest thing about these films is there isn't a Kenneth Williams in them. <laughs> right, on, on that note, I think it's time to say we will be back next week, returning to regular programming with the um, first three stories of Season 4 of Doctor Now uh, That means Season three is over. Yes! <laughs> uh, that means it's also time to attribute our stories that each of us are going to spearhead. So, Nathan... You will be spearheading discussion on the Highlanders, mm. the Moonbase, and the Faceless Ones. Mm-hmm. Richard, you will be spearheading discussion on the Tenth Planet, Yay. the Underwater Menace, and Evil of the Daleks. Yay. And I will be uh, spearheading probably a very short discussion on the Smugglers. <laughs> In fact, it's over already. <laughs> uh, followed by discussions on Power of the Daleks and the Macra Terra. So it's good night from me, gentlemen. Do you have anything further to say? night from both of them as well. No, good night from me too. <laughs> good night. You've been listening to Flight Through Entirety with Brendan Jones, Nathan Bottomley and Richard Stone. Episode 10, Jill Curzon-inspired wallpaper, was recorded on Sunday, October 5th. The next episode will be released on Sunday the 19th. You can find us online at flightthroughentirety.com, Flight Through Entirety on Facebook and iTunes, or FTE Podcast on Twitter. We're so thrilling, you must be there. The TV version, Barbara sort of gets... We pause now, dear listener, to share a picture of Helen Shapiro. <laughs> Which we will be sharing this with you. Yes. We, um, feel, we feel that she's something of a <laughs> <something of> <laughs> proselytizing influence on this whole podcast. Yeah. Barbara does get a few sort of keen.